0: to the 394th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm glad to bring writer John Muallam back to COVID Calls. He's the author of the book, This is Chance, The Shaking of an American City of Waste That Held It Together. And we'll be talking in a few moments about his recent article in the New York Times. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch and you can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of disaster or at COVID calls please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Thanks to the diligent and creative work of uh, my team at at COVID Calls, we um, have got guests scheduled out into January and February. So please do send suggestions for future calls. Go ahead and get them scheduled into the new year. As of today, December 22nd, 2021, there are 4,906 deaths from COVID-19 in South Korea. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest back for his second visit on COVID calls. John Wallum is a longtime writer at large with the New York Times Magazine and a contributor to numerous other radio shows and magazines, including This American Life, The Daily, 99% Invisible, California Sunday, and Wired. He's frequently talked about his reporting on radio and television shows, including Fresh Air, Radio Lab, and The Colbert Report, and at the TED Conference in Vancouver. And uh, it's his most recent book is This is Chance, which we had the opportunity to talk about. Last time that he was on COVID calls, John Wallum. It's great to see you again. How are you?
1: I'm um, okay, thank you, Scott. I'm I'm happy to be back.
0: Just to uh, situate ourselves and maybe people who didn't hear the previous conversation when we talked, and I went back. It was I can't believe this was right. It was in April, April fourteenth.
1: That's surprising to me as well. I thought it was a lot more recently than that. I guess I've talked yes. to you not on the We've sure.
0: talked since Yeah. 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 But, so, I mean, it's just the sort of weird COVID time compression is is doing a number on me particularly right now, but um, just uh, maybe you could remind us where you're calling from and, and maybe give a little update on what the pandemic situation is there.
1: Sure. Yeah. I live on uh, Bainbridge Island, which is uh, just right next to Seattle, sort of a suburb of Seattle. And um, what is the COVID situation? I mean, I've got a. I got to be honest, I don't, I probably don't know it in the detail that I once, I once did. Um, I do know that we were having an uptick in cases over the last week or so. Um, definitely, you know, just like everywhere else. So though it, it's, um, you know, it's dramatic because it's a smaller community and it's been relatively, um, you know, it's not been too impacted by COVID any, any uptick feels dramatic, even though it's not particularly a dramatic one, but definitely, you know, there's a lot of, um, I mean, you my older daughter's school for, you know, there's been a number of cases just in the, in the days leading up to the, uh, Christmas vacation and stuff. So it's a, people are a little more on edge than they were, than they were, um, probably a week or two ago for sure. Um, including my own family, but it's nothing, um, you know, it's, it's still it's it's not a it's not dystopian conditions by any means. Um, so we're just trying to get along.
0: What's the situation in the schools there? Are they able to um, track and trace, and if somebody gets sick, they keep the schools open and then isolate and? and
1: yeah, you know, so the fine. public schools I think have done a, a fairly good job um, this fall. the The schools actually out Friday was the last day, so that was pretty good timing because the. Um, there were a number of, it seemed like there was, you know, a case or two uh, every, every day for the last few days before they left for school. But yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good system. I mean, they, fortunately they have the, um, the means to do, they have a free testing that's available to students and staff and it's, op- you know, it was open pretty, I think every day, um, that school was in session. And so, um, that made it fairly easy to get kids tested. And then they, they were, you know, um, notifying contacts and things like that when a case so they're they're pretty transparent about it and you know i don't i haven't looked too much of how other i was reading your um your tweets about the situation there and how it was handled there it's not quite with that intensity um but it it certainly seems like it's um what they're doing has made it you know pretty livable and and uh safe situation so yeah it's, it's it's it seems like it's a it's it's as good as it can be you know under these circumstances
0: one of the things you and i've talked about is a local vaccination center there which you participated in and then i think you've done a lot of thinking about sort of the culture that emerged around that vaccination center and the life of that center which transcended vaccination in some interesting ways is it back up and running for boosters
1: yeah so we we did a uh, we did a number of clinics um you know, we, we had our, we were operating every weekend, um, from, you know, pretty much a year ago until June, uh, once the, the older kids all came through and then there were, we uh, stood down for a couple months and then started up again in the fall with boosters and, um, and the younger kids, which was like a real adventure. Um, and so we had one, I actually wasn't there last weekend. that was the first one I've missed in a while, but they did a booster clinic last weekend. They had done all the younger kids, both doses, one before Thanksgiving and one after. And, um, I don't know what the word is, if they'll be starting up again after the new year. Um, but the, they also run the same group runs a testing site, which is once a week, it does PCR tests. And I actually had to take, um, a family member there on Monday. And it was interesting because it was, um, I'd been there once before. I actually thought of you because it reminded me of something we had we had talked about but i'd been there once before just for the purposes of travel i needed to get a a pcr test before i um was part of part of an event and um you know because i've been volunteering at the clinic i knew a number of the people who you know the woman the city employee who runs the clinic the testing site and some of the other volunteers there's a lot of overlap and uh but this time when i went through um, I don't know if I was just imagining it, but I think with Omicron, it was there was a little more kind of vigilance about you know roll up your window when you do the swab, and I don't mm-hmm. I don't remember the people wearing a face shield when they came and handed you things. It just seemed like it was a little more, and it it did seem like I sort of had the realization that the um, the infrastructure of the whole thing it felt very uh, grim. You know, it felt like it mm-hmm. could have been in a in a bad disaster movie or something like that, mm-hmm. and yet it was so because i knew the people and everyone you know was oh hey laura how you doing you know and it was so it was a kind of like a cheery folksy atmosphere too right. and it just it was really eye opening to me to realize that like these things don't necessarily have to be um you know the tone of them doesn't have to be uh i think what we anticipate that even in a situation where the um the what would be the word like the accoutrements are dystopian, you know, or, or scary that it's like the human dimension of the whole thing. It doesn't really have to take on that kind of cast. Um, so yeah. How, why did I start talking about that? I don't remember. I apologize. No, but, uh, it,
0: well, cause you're filling me in on the vaccination center, but it's really right, interesting right. cause the, right. Cause it's not cinematic. I mean, that's not the, that's the part of contagion that gets cut right it's like where then people go back to the testing site and they go back to the vaccination site like that's not that doesn't fit into our sort of emergency mindset of what a disaster looks like i mean you're describing like a continuity
1: yeah and i think it's also um you know i mean maybe it's a matter of scale too right like i wouldn't maybe well i don't know maybe within like a new york city neighborhood i mean what i i didn't When I lived in New York, I didn't have a real like neighborhood ties to where I lived, but I would imagine, you know, that maybe there are situations in big cities where on the level of a neighborhood, you, you do have a relationship with the people who are staffing some of these places. Um, but yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's just been, um, I don't know, you know, I've never, I've never lived in a town this size, at least not since I was a kid, um, Mm -hmm. and it's not really small towns, but 20, 25,000 people, um, but, yeah, I think that those sort of human, individual human connections really go a long way into um, just kind of dictating the, the feel of a lot of these efforts. And in addition to just their effectiveness, you know, it's just it's just the feel of going through them and the experience.
0: Just a quick reminder to folks you are listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to John Mualim, who was kind enough to come back to, to COVID Calls to talk about his uh, new article that just appeared a couple of days ago in the New York Times. It was a sort of end of year, um, big question series. So there's a lot of um, great essays in this collection, and yours is titled, Is Life Better When We're Together? And I'm just going to read a couple lines, um, and then we can dive into some of this. But you ask in the piece, you said, it used to be a question, is life better when we're together? It used to be a question, the only hermits bothered to ask, now it's a pressing mainstream concern. Many Americans did bounce through the year ecstatic to be in a community again, but only with certain people, people who hadn't revealed themselves to be morons, jerkwads, or fascists. Something about passing through the ordeal of the pandemic seemed to empower people to finally write those other people off. If true cohesion is impossible, it seemed permissible to scale back the project of togetherness by drawing a cozy circle around us and a bright flaming line between us and them. That's from John Muallam's new piece in the New York Times. Um, it's a lot to talk about here, John. Uh, so maybe we can start with the assignment, you know, and what this collection is meant to do, this sort of big collection of essays in the Times. What did they want you to write about?
1: Yeah, so the editors, this was for the the Sunday review, you know, portion of the, the opinion pages, basically. Um, And I thought they, it was a really, um, I mean, seeing it all, how it all turned out, I'm, I'm really impressed with the entire package and, and I thought it was a really interesting way to, um, you know, have a kind of year in review is they wanted to just, you know, what, what were the debates that we were embroiled in, right? Big and, and small. So I think there's 41 of them total where, where different writers were, were tasked to sort of unpack or review, you know, different arguments, um. And, uh, and this was meant as a sort of introduction, um, to the, to the entire, uh, package when they had called me and asked, and that, that was what they were interested in. They wanted, they thought that of all the questions they were looking at, this, this was an undercurrent of many, if not all of them, which was, you know, how are we basically supposed to exist in a society, right? Is it, is it possible? (laughs) Um, and uh is is life better when we're together that was their the exact prompt that I was, that I was given which um which is insane i mean it's not it's one of the I've, in my experience I have, you know, like editors you know that this is like of course the the biggest possible most unanswerable question um with the caveat that of course you're not supposed to come to any kind of tidy conclusion but it's it's sort of a jumping off point um and so i agreed without really knowing how i was going to address that question or like what my way in would be and um which frankly i i often really don't like to do i i like to feel like i at least have an impulse for how i can meet the demands of an assignment like this um Mm. but it was a pretty tight timetable so i i just decided to take a take a leap um and, uh, and yeah, and actually, one one of the main things that I came on to first, I think I I told you this when we spoke. So, I I should say, I interviewed you for the piece, and you appear in the, the piece toward the end, making some right. really vital contributions. But one of the things that, um, when I started thinking about this question in the most general terms, um, I started thinking about something that I had called you to uh, to talk about uh, over the summer, which was when I was, uh, you know, because I was been working at this vaccination clinic and I'd sort of seen the the kind of rush of, um, of, um, happiness and, and, uh, togetherness that had emerged among the volunteers, um, I got very interested in volunteering, like as a, as a subject that maybe I would write about and, you know, and, and specifically the idea that it really didn't seem to be exclusively, if not even mostly about doing the good deeds. Um, there was a dimension of, um, being together with other volunteers, of the satisfaction of, you know, helping someone in the community, that that was gratifying for people themselves. And at one point in our conversation, you had said, uh, well, you know, that's exactly how the people who are protesting vaccines probably also feel right. The dynamics probably the same. Right. And uh, I found that kind of jarring. So so, yeah, I I just with that sort of as a vague jumping off point, I, I got very interested in kind of what are group dynamics like, how do groups work? What are these kinds of feedback loops of, um, you know, the kind of joy and euphoria of being together and how can they, um, you know, they obviously provoke a lot of really wonderful human behavior, but it seems like, um, they provoke a lot of really destructive human behavior as well. And that, that kind of got, you know, one thing I've been thinking about most of the year was just, um, you know, how, how, how much fun the people who were, uh, you know, acting in sort of overtly antisocial ways seemed to be having um, right And uh, that was something I could not make sense of and and I tried to unpack a little bit in the piece.
0: so I mean, it starts off I mean I, the opening is is tremendous, and it introduced me to somebody I wasn't aware of, which is this uh, sort of become a famous I mean, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but like a a, a hermit influencer, I guess you would call him Panta Petrovich and in serbia who's this
1: yeah so he was a guy who uh the um a french journalist had had uh visited in august um and that was how i and and others uh, found out about him because the story kind of ricocheted around online but yeah Ponte petrovic is uh he's a he's a your typical uh you know cave hermit i'd say he lives in, a, in a, a wooded area outside a small town in serbia um in a in a in a cave in a mountain and he was a former uh, mechanical engineer i believe about 20 years ago when he just was so repulsed by society and other people that he decided he was going to go the way of the hermit and move into this cave and the reason why he was newsworthy was because he was coming out of his cave and down back into society in order to get a COVID vaccine and the um, reporter filmed him in this very kind of dissonant uh, scene where this, you know, literal caveman was rolling up his tunic to uh, get a COVID shot and and advocating that everyone else get one too and and um, how wonderful it was. So um, yeah, that seemed just like an amusing way in, you know, with the with the for two reasons. One is because you know even he recognized that um, you know he was connected to other people enough that he might get a disease from them and uh and that was unavoidable that kind of togetherness on that level was unavoidable and then also because just some of the comments on this story were insane you know it was just the typical Mm -hmm. thing about people online arguing with each other and saying incredibly hateful things to one another but it just struck me as really amusing that they were this it all poured out of a story about a hermit um
0: yeah my my takeaway from that was was also like once again I don't know why I'm constantly lecturing, you know, anti-vaxxers who don't want to hear from me. But it's like, even the cave guy is coming down, like, (laughs) you guys might want to take a second and think about it. I mean, there's that sort of that aspect of it as well. But it also resonated, I thought, with the kind of, so I'll speak, you know, from my own sort of point of privilege, a person who was able to be indoors during the sort of earlier phase of the pandemic in the United States and didn't. I'm not a healthcare worker. I'm not a sanitation worker. I was not. So I was able to be in the cave, so to speak, with my family. And so people did have a, a way to think about him or the experience of isolation that they maybe a lot of people never had that experience in their life where they went for a month only interacting with their family or if they lived alone, being alone, except with the with the Zoom call.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I, I mean, and even if you were not in that sort of situation, I think one thing that the pandemic did initially, especially when we didn't quite understand the science of transmission and everyone was being, you know, incredibly vigilant in all different kinds of ways, it definitely at least made you, I mean, it, it concretely made other people risk to your well-being, right? So, right. Um, so I think that that, you know, whether, whether you, whether that made you dislike other people or have an aversion to other people, or whether it was just a strictly a practical matter, it, I think it got you a little bit closer, maybe, to a hermit mindset, in the right. sense that you, were, you you saw other people as a source of um, friction, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that was um, yeah. I mean, especially talking to the, the editors at the time, I mean, they really thought, you know, as as a conceit, like this this year was supposed to be the year that we all kind of came out of our caves and right. Back to the business of being a community and and uh, you know it didn't it didn't exactly work out as well as it could have,
0: so then you deconstruct that, and and I learned I learned a lot from this piece. I wasn't aware of the um sort of minimal group studies and the sort of uh, psychological prehistory. I mean, it's connected to things I've studied in sort of sociology of disasters, but I wasn't aware of of these. Can you say a little bit about what the minimal group studies were?
1: Yeah, so this came to me through a conversation with a um social psychologist named Dominic Packer who's who's just published a book with a colleague a month or two ago called the, the Power of Us and it's all about sort of group identities and how they form and um yeah, so he 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 referred to these as like the the most important experiments in psychology, I think he or maybe among the most important, but he really stressed um, that these were kind of landmark studies. They were done um, in the 50s by a, a psychologist named um, Henri Tajfel, and I, I may be pronouncing that wrong. I probably am. In any case, um, here was a guy who he was a Holocaust survivor, sort of. He had he was more of he had fought in the war for for France, but he was Polish and had lost uh, his entire family in, in the Holocaust. And uh, and he really wanted to investigate how do conflicts between groups or antagonism between groups Arise, um, intragroup conflict, but he needed a kind of, um, you know, baseline or control group uh, to that because, you you know, you want to get it, you want to get a group dynamic in its purest form sort of outside of um, political matters or, or, um, you know, uh, race or other biases. So he devised this strategy to build what he called minimal groups, which were groups that were just going to be based pretty much on nothing. He, he assigned them, you know, had, he had them look at a couple of paintings and he said, OK, you guys are the Paul Klee group and you guys are the Kandinsky group. And uh, and then he had them allocate money to to different people. and And invariably they gave more money to their own group than the other. And there were all sorts of other experiments that followed that sort of showed how ready the readiness of people to be part of a group, you know, as, as Dominic Packer said, you know, when you, t- even if you just tell someone you're group A and you're group B, and it's explicitly based on nothing, that, that person is psyched to be in group A. They're like, oh, great, group A, it's my favorite group, you know? And, uh, and what, and so this really, like, to me, it was a little bit, it was a little bit frightening. I think um, Dom, Dom tried to spin it as like a positive thing. Like we have this inbuilt um, readiness for solidarity, right? And that's kind of what, you know, as a, as a, human success story. That's like a a great tool that we have, that we're willing to get together in these groups and believe in those groups enough to accomplish things together. Um, But to me, it also just, it was a little, I wouldn't say it's clarifying because I wouldn't say I have a clear takeaway from it, but it certainly had a lot to do. In my mind, it seemed to have a lot to do with some of the things we've seen this year where um, you kind of just, it doesn't, you kind of just get the sense it doesn't even matter what people are saying after a certain point, as long as like they're all saying it together. Right. And there, and it's, it's you know saying that thing or doing that thing doesn't even have to make sense so long as it it is uh you know confirming their their group ide- their, that they're part of a given group um, and I think that's true on the left and and the right I mean I think it's you know I'm not trying to say it's equivalent I think we see a lot more kind of in the in the far right but um but it definitely you know I myself like I I feel like I you know I I will often you know learn about news by seeing someone have a take on the news right and I think that I. You know, I'm sure I'm guilty of just adopting that perspective on something that I know nothing about. You know, and um, you know, something I try to be careful about. But I think it's um, it's inevitable. So, um, so yeah, those experiments uh, they they really did seem to get at something that that and and give a kind of intellectual heft to something that I had been wondering a lot about, pretty naively and ignorantly. So, uh, I definitely wanted to write about them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think it's um, it, it really sort of crashes two things together. You know, one is this idea that we have that people that there's a sort of altruistic kind of helping aspect of human society. And that's what, you know, pick up any world history book and and there'll be notes of this that this is how society progresses people learn how to collaborate and and you might not call it altruism it might not be person to person but they do things that benefit society more generally because of how they work and the fact that they follow the rules and they don't kill each other and they join a church or whatever it may be and the things that we could call altruism but then you're finding you're bringing into the piece that well maybe just being part of the group is actually what people Want to do, and that's the more important overriding thing. And you talked to psychologist Mark Snyder about this, about the history of volunteerism. What did you learn there?
1: Yeah, I mean, he he basically confirmed exactly what you just just said. That you know that this idea that people are volunteering because they're saints is just a completely, it's a very unhelpful myth, right? (laughs) Um, It's unrealistic. Like they're they're invariably getting a lot of very self interested rewards from the process, and it's actually the it's the people who you know embrace that um and don't feel any conflict about it that are it predicts you know that they'll they'll keep volunteering right they, there has to be some kind of integration of you know your kind of altruistic purpose and then your and then the rewards you yourself are experiencing um and and a big reward predictably is that you are being brought into a kind of community with other volunteers or reinforcing your ties to the community in which you're volunteering with. So there's that kind of rush of, of contact, right? Of connectedness to these, to these other folks, um, that creates this kind of feedback loop, you know, the more, the more you volunteer, the more connected you get, and the more connected you feel, the more you'll want to, volunteer and i i identify with that a thousand percent just in my own experience volunteering at these at these clinics you know i've met i've met friends there i've seen people you know coming into the clinics who i haven't seen in a year right who just are other community members or friends of friends or whatever it is and um and i love it you know it's like it's a great it's why i keep going back honestly you know and uh and my daughter is actually so my other 13 year old daughter she actually started volunteering as well when we had the um I guess she's, they had to, I think they had to pay her because they can't technically have her be a volunteer for some sort of legal reason. But um, when we were doing the younger kids vaccines, she oh, and really? some friends started volunteering to like, you know, they have a, a raccoon costume, the organization, the nonprofit. So she was wearing this raccoon costume or walking around with it, handing out, you know, stickers and stuff. Um, and she, on the way to the clinic one morning, we had the same conversation where she was saying, you know, I kind of feel bad because I'm not really doing it for them. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing it for me. Right. And I said, no, I think that's fine. Just keep, just keep your eye on it, you know, because sometimes you're going to be asked to do things you don't want to do. And if you're only doing it for you, then you're not really being a team player, but there's nothing wrong with that. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's exactly what Mark is pointing out in the piece that the, um, that's true no matter what the, the aim of the, of the volunteering is, right. Whether it's a, a moral thing or, or, or a not moral thing, or whether it's a a loving thing or a hateful thing, that kind of, um, that kind of feedback loop can still be set off where people are, are just feeling like they're getting deeper and deeper because they're they're being, they're doing this activity with other people.
0: So I I wondered about that, you know, too, and trying to sort of read that back through the history of the pandemic. And I've wondered, you know, a lot of the discourse around like why the states like um, Florida, for example, Governor DeSantis, we're going to be open for business. He said, you know, June 1st, and we're going to stay open. I mean, there's that economic argument that was out there. That's why they would reopen and leave the sort of lockdown phase behind. But I think there's a lot more going on there. And your piece made me sort of rethink that particular moment in the pandemic, That um, that moment of lockdown, which I think was... A, a kind of uh, isolating for a lot of people, and very and also very personal uh, about protecting my health and my family's health. That that had run its course somehow. That there was there was this desire. You could even see it as a form of volunteerism or altruism. I think to a certain degree, I mean, people were confining themselves so that they didn't get sick, with they didn't make other people sick. Um, but that. That had a that had a shelf life and it had expired for a lot of Americans by that point. I don't want to give Ron DeSantis any particular points of sociological insight, but I think maybe he knew something and maybe others knew as well that when they said we're getting back together, we're reopening, we're allowing people to go back and live their lives, what he really meant was get back to your groups.
1: Yeah, and also we we're doing it as we are a group. Right. That now now we have a new mission, Florida. Right. right? Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I remember around that same time um, hearing an interview with um what's his name? The, is it Scott Kelly, the astronaut who was on the, the, the longest time in space. No, not that not the senator. It's the oh, mark. There's oh, oh. which one's the senator, which one's the astronaut? I'm no, I don't of. know. <laughs> anyway the brother who' the the brother who was not the senator who I heard him being interviewed and um, and he was saying, you know there were the interviewer was the premise of the interview was what can we learn about being in a in a quarantine from your experience on the space station and he um, he said, you know the most important thing is you have to have a sense of the mission you know that anything is anything is bearable, any kind of isolation is bearable if you understand why you're doing it and you're focused on the reasons for doing it and i think that that's that's probably plays into what you're describing too i mean just to kind of like idly speculate um but uh, but uh i mean i would say that that i think the reason why there there was exhaustion was that with that with with staying in was because there the the sort of sense of mission of it it wasn't maybe reinforced enough or it wasn't it wasn't driven home enough and and eventually people just kind of flagged their stamina for it flagged and so to come in with a with a new mission, right, which is now we're now we're coming back, you know, now we're doing that together. Um, Yeah, I think that's of course, that's like an incredibly powerful, powerful message.
0: You were talking about this in the in the piece um, and it was sort of end up with January 6th. And um, you refer to the I'd forgotten about him podium guy, Adam Johnson. Um, who I guess is in some of the videos, like literally he took the, did he take the podium from, from the house of representatives and just sort of walking around the. Yeah. Yeah. It was Nancy
1: Pelosi's lectern and he's, and he was photographed. Uh, I mean, I think it was one of the weirdest photos to come out of that whole day, but yeah, he was just photographed with it kind of walking through, just kind of waving and having, it seemed like he was having a good time. So how does, I mean, what group does he belong to? I mean, I don't know, you know, what struck me about him was that, um, I mean, I think like a lot of, um, like a lot of the people who were, who had gone to DC, you know, he, you know, the, his, the indict. I mean, I read the indictment on him and, um, and like other ones that I saw as well, they they really documented like, you know, he was posting the social media all the way up on his trip up to DC from Florida, sort of like making dumb jokes, and and then at the rally also. And you know, he posed with a no trespassing sign at the Capitol, with a you know, with a some kind of you know comment like "not today" or something. You know, it's just like very right. snarky, like it was like the Hangover or something. You know, it was just like a boys a boys trip kind of vibe, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and I just think it's um, it's very hard. it's very hard to see those things and not just accept it. Like, okay, this, this guy's having like a really wonderful time, you know, (laughs) like in a way that like, I'm not, you know, like I don't, I'm not having, I'm not doing anything like that. Even when I've been part of collective actions, like during the pandemic, it's, it hasn't had that same kind of like freewheeling joyousness about it, I don't think. Um, And so to me, that's what stuck out to me. was just like, you know, he, the carefreeness of it all that that he kind mm-hmm. of, um, you know, was projecting and and how dissonant that was. And then and then when he was sent in, or when he was uh, appeared in court, the judge kind of picked up on that and and really scolded him. And just saying, like, you know, basically said, like, you, you have no will of your own. Like you were just completely suggestible. Like you believe this lie and then you hooked up with all these people to who also believe the lie and you just kind of went along with it. And did some terrible things, and so why wouldn't I put you in prison? Because those people are all still out there, you know. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know this guy. I I, and so it's I don't want to be unfair and use him as an example of something, but clearly it seems to suggest that there's um, that the group dynamic and and that kind of feeling of belonging was a was probably a really powerful motivator for some people. And it it's not that that was the reason why anyone was there. I mean, I don't they all had their own reasons and their own grievances. But it it certainly helped, you know. I, I just I don't think that would have happened if it if it hadn't been so much fun for those people, you know. I just don't think it would have accelerated
0: in the way the way that it did. This is like to me really the the crux of it, and I'm just going to read another sentence from the from the piece. A couple sentences. You talk about you know, people like Podium Guy setting off, kind of running in the wrong direction, um, taking the wrong, you know, uh, taking on the wrong mission, maybe. the wrong lessons from the pandemic but i'm going to quote you here they might set off running to help in exactly the wrong direction and just keep running for months or years as long as the disaster lasted even if objectively their running didn't seem to accomplish very much or in this case they're storming um quoting you again they would be running as a group which feels better than doing nothing alone that and that has really stuck with me since i've read it and reread it a couple times um and you and I talk. I talk about my parents, um, my mother and my stepfather, who um, uh, choose not to be vaccinated. I think um, you know. I th- for them as a group. I don't talk about it a lot with them, but uh, I think there's a group identity in that for them. Neither one of them is a health official. Neither one of them stormed the Capitol. Uh, My mother sings in church choir, which really terrifies me. She's unvaccinated, and she goes and vocalizes with people twice a week. Um, And, you know, she's in baby boom generation, so to me, she shouldn't be doing that. But she's not a person who's setting public health standards for the rest of the country. Um, so I, I think what I'm descri- trying to describe here is I'm conflicted about this because she's found a group, yeah. it's not the group I want her to find. Um, but I don't think she's actively hurting anyone. And I know she's lonely. I just, I mean, your piece has set me off into reexamining some of the, some of my yeah. thoughts about this.
1: I just think it's very hard to um I mean, I'm. I know that I've. I'm. I've been trying to think of a good example while you're while you're talking, but I'm. I'm sure that I've done things that are either, you know, com- completely silly or even you know harmful to myself because I thought they were the right things, and I was getting a lot of feedback from the people around me that they were, the right the right things. I mean, I. I know I've. I've definitely worn masks in situations where I thought it was utterly ridiculous to have to wear a mask, like where the risk was, you know, negligible. And I just did it because the people around me were doing it and why I upset them. And, you know, so I I think that it's um, I guess I guess all I could really say at the end of of all this reporting that I did for the piece was that it it just does seem like the. um, You know, a, a disaster or a pandemic does create this kind of vacuum and and that I think one way that we may, you know, it's possible that one way we deal with that is to is to like you know, put more value on what people around us are doing, right? That, that um, there's a kind of a certainty there, whether it's true or not. And, um, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, luck or <laughs> about who happens to be around you, right? And, and what messages they're getting. And, um, you know, if in 10 years we find out that these mRNA vaccines are were terrible mistakes, I'm going to have to think about all the hours I sunk in on the weekends to put them in people's bodies, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, I, I can, I can write a whole different story about what, a you know, how, how, what a sucker I I was, but I think it's, you know, we can all just kind of do the best with the information that we have around us. And, um, yeah, I just think it's, it's, there's, there's just so much more of a premium on, um, unbelonging in situations like this because Mm -hmm. it's very hard to be the contrarian when there's it feels like there's so much at at stake right it's it's very hard to be the person who's saying like to the to the crowd that's running to escape some disaster like no 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 this way you know (laughs) like you all of you people are are wrong um and uh yeah i don't i don't think i'd have the courage to do that you know in, in a lot of situations
0: I think people in in my world of research are gonna read this piece and and I wouldn't be surprised and you know at the next hazard center meeting or the next time, I don't know whenever we'll all be together again, but um that this will be discussed because there's a long trajectory in disaster social science around pro social behavior and emergent social behavior in disaster is a whole literature of it. Um, and a lot of times that literature is invoked, particularly early in disasters, to push back on this idea that society is going to fall apart at the seams. And news media, and they've gotten better, but honestly, particularly a lot of local TV stations will often stake out a camera crew at, like a, at a, a department store so they can try to catch somebody breaking a window and looting. And they're like, see, this is what happens in disaster. People are antisocial, but worst impulses of people are brought out. Again, that cinematic impulse we were talking about earlier. And the research doesn't usually bear that out. People do tend to be altruistic and pro-social in the midst of a disaster unfolding. But I think you, you have asked us to rethink that in a couple of ways. One of which is that, you know, We should pay more attention to the groups that are emerging. It's not a bunch of individuals sort of reacting to the disaster and saying, I'm going to loot this or I'm going to help here. We should look instead to what the pre-existing social groupings are as an indicator of how people might react. But the other is the factor of time in all of this. And a lot of that research is looking at disasters with a really compressed time frame and you're looking at a rangy weird disaster that has all kinds of temporal spillover here so i mean i know you didn't write this piece to try to make it into annual sociological review but at the same time i think that there's some ideas here that are going to be provocative to people who who do you know a lot of research in this area around human behavior and disasters
1: yeah that's really cool to hear um no i totally i have um uh, academic jealousy of uh, <laughs> of all you got so um, yeah no i think i think the time thing is really is really key because like i i think about um like when i was working on my book about the alaska earthquake like there was um uh you know one of the kind of clearest um, emergent groups was, you know, right after the quake, there was a, a JCPenney building that that was partially collapsed. And a group of people just right away started digging out this uh, car that had been crushed by debris. And they we were working together, they're bringing in tools and tow trucks and you know, all self-organized. And they managed to rescue this this woman and get her to the hospital who had been, you know, flattened in this, in this car. And what I thought was really interesting was that in one of the interviews with one of the people who was involved in this, and then he said, and then we went there was another car, and we started digging that car, and that one took even longer, you know. And we could hear it was, you know, it was exploding, like the the gas, the hoses of the engine and stuff were popping as we were digging it, and we were rushing and trying to get to it. And they finally spent all the time; they finally get to the car, and they realize there's no one in it. Someone had left it running, and and gotten out. And um, and so you just think that, like, you know, that's the same exact people and the same exact techniques that had been mobilized in this one situation ended up saving a woman's life and then mobilized in this other situation they accomplished literally nothing and might have gotten someone killed in the in the process um and so if you i, th- I think that just always stuck with me because it, it sort of shows that you know we don't know the outcome when we're working on the on the project right we don't even really know the truth we just are going on the on the information we have it at that moment but yeah, I think if you add in this time, and that's what I, the the bit of the piece that you were reading, you know, this idea that you could be digging out that wrong car for no reason, and then it's just going, you know, for for months, if not years, and then how how warped that experience becomes, um, you know, over that time, and the sort of um, the sort of stories or justifications you'd have to come up with to to keep your group dedicated to that task when you know you're you're not getting anywhere with it um so yeah i don't know i mean i guess that's what i was saying when i said you know if if god forbid you know we the the i have to go back and think about my my vaccine volunteering in in a negative light you know it's it's um you know at the at the moment i would never dream that that i would have to do that you know and i i don't think it's likely and knock (laughs) knock on wood that i won't because we have you know we have science and and all that, but but I, I just think the the larger point is that no, nothing that we do is um you know is guaranteed to stand up to to history, you know, um in in the future. And so um, you know, any one of us can be part of some weird looking group. Um uh, yeah. You know?
0: yeah, I think that's the, it's um but I guess for me the one of the real takeaways of this discussion is that, you know, most people are not gonna be, they're not a group of like healthcare workers who are banded together as a group and they're suffering right now greatly but they're banded together with a mission uh or they're doing it as i heard from cassie alexander who wrote you're the nurse they do it because it frankly it pays pretty well and they didn't expect to be thrust into this moment of crisis but here they are and they're okay so that's a group or the other group with podium guy like trashing the capitol building the great majority of people overwhelming majority are somewhere in between with their other social groupings in, in between And, and so what I'm thinking about, you know, and hearing you talk and reading this piece is that that's a, that's a powerful form of coping. And it could be even, it could be wrong. It could be actually just not helping or mildly like hurting, you know, maybe it slowed people down from getting a vaccination. That's not a good thing, but maybe they ended up getting a vaccination. They were part of a group that skeptical. And then they went, well, I don't know. I mean, with the, there's so many permutations of these groupings within the pandemic that, but that's where most of the coping would take place. That's my point. And, yeah. And, I think
1: that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, what more, I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's, um, I, don't, I don't even know that I have anything to add to that. Well, I think that's, just that's, that's a pretty key insight. I think as we try to make sense of what's been happening and kind of un, unravel some of it in so the it's future, better
0: not to be alone.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, of course, you know, like we may all be blundering around together, but it's, uh, you know, you can still make plenty of bad decisions by yourself, too. (laughs) um, Yeah.
0: What have people said about it? I mean, there's a way to read this piece and say, wait a minute, John, you're drawing a moral equivalence here to healthcare workers and capital stormers. It's just human behavior to be part of a group that's a little bit of a grim takeaway what's your i don't know if anybody said that but I'm uh, well, I, mean, I,
1: there. I, I said i i was careful to say explicitly at the end that i i think it's not moral equivalence i right, think that, mo- that morality is sort of the only way we can we can differentiate a lot of these things ultimately and we have to be really really clear about that i don't think it's um i don't think it should be insulting to anyone to to say like you know we're, we're all human beings and and some of our you know basic impulses if, if not like universal down to the individual at least are pretty consistent across large numbers of people and um yeah i don't know it doesn't it doesn't um i haven't gotten any feedback like like that um i've heard from some uh some uh i don't know how you would characterize them they just people did not like the piece because they thought it was dumb in a kind of blanket way. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure what they're responding to, but I seem to be getting a higher proportion of those than um, your typical New York times piece. Um, Just sort of react, you know, reacting out of some kind of political, um, you know, I don't know what you would even call it. They're, they're not in the, in the the same tribe, I guess that I'm writing from. Um, But no, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's only been out a day, so it's a little too soon to, to sum up reactions, but I don't know. I think it's, um, I mean, if I can be perfectly honest, like, I don't know if I kind of landed the plane in the piece, like I, 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 I had a lot of interesting stuff I dug up and, um, got some smart people like you to reflect on it. And, uh, but I don't know if there's like a clean takeaway necessarily that people can, can either, you know, give a thumbs up or thumbs down to, but hopefully it just kind of makes people think and maybe see some things that are happening through a slightly different
0: lens. Well, I think that's where for me, you know, as a historian, I, I sometimes get a little itchy when I read about social, when I read social psychology, because it, it generalizes humans. And so I, I feel like where the, the open question, as it must be for this piece is, well, we've we got to wait and see, because this, there's a lot of things that are unprecedented about this time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing to say to to generalize people's motivations, like in terms of specifics. But I don't know. Do you do you not think it's like credible to say like people have an impulse to form communities? Is that on that level? Is it? That's an honest no. question. I don't know.
0: Um, no, I'm happy with that. Um, I think it's it's just I always like the two together, mm, mm-hmm. and that's what you did right i mean it's to say okay this is what we know when we study what human beings do but a lot of times unfortunately and they think this is maybe some of the flaw in some of that pro-social work mm-hmm. uh, of emergent behaviors like this is what humans do they're like well but humans in this particular case seem to have done something that's a little variable from that so let's try to figure out what's happening in this particular moment that may be a fine the fine tuning of that i think it's the bringing of those two perspectives together that's yeah that's valuable that's that's my point so and that's what i again it's like it's like i don't think you haven't given up on the idea that humans want to get together and form groups and be volunteerist be volunteers but you have to also leave space to try to understand podium guy and what group he's involved with that's yeah. that's what i'm trying to say
1: yeah yeah, it was interesting you know with someone you may have pointed me to her kate starbird was that did i learn about her from you yeah so she's, she's a. Yeah. And uh, I spoke to her for the piece. So she's a, um, uh, what would you call her a data scientist at the university of Washington who, and, and she put it really succinctly. And I was really sorry that I didn't get to talk about her work in the, in the piece, but it ended up sort of being like too long of an aside, but you know, she's, she's looked at, um, volunteerism online, right. So people who are disseminating information after disasters and things like that. And she had, she had started studying that and then she, she shifted over to studying kind of the dissemination of misinformation and basically she said they look exactly the same right it's right. just the the dynamics look exactly the same and and in some cases it's the same people you know someone who was uh you know getting information out about um you know i don't remember what her example was maybe it was the earthquakes in iran you know a decade ago or whenever that was and, and then you you see them later and now they're spreading uh but or even uh who's who's the actor she told me about uh He's a, uh, oh God, it's not James Conn, but it's uh, the, I'm going to think it's James Conn. He was, he's a, he's a kind of a right-wing guy on Twitter. And after the, the campfire in paradise, California, wow. he was, he was getting word out about, you know, so-and-so help this person find their grandma, help this. Hmm. And then he was like, he's also doing the same thing with, uh, you know, uh, misinformation about voting fraud and things like that. So there you've got kind of one node in a system that you just, just depending on what he wants to type that day, he can do a. You know, something extremely pro-social or something ex- extremely antisocial in the end.
0: So we're almost out of time. My discussion with John Wallam today on COVID calls, and we've been talking a lot about his new piece out in the New York Times, "His Life Better When We're Together? Um, I think we've answered, we've got one level of answer to that question, certainly with more to say. Um, just on the way out here, John, can you give us any coming attractions? I mean, what parts of this still have your wheels spinning what unanswered questions are you still working on out of this work
1: yeah i mean i think like i still really am interested in maybe writing about volunteers and in general i mean that was that i ended up that got me to this piece but that wasn't at all what this piece ended up being about so um so i don't know yeah I'm, i'm thinking a lot about that and um i i'm not i'm not really sure otherwise i don't really want to write about um the podium guys of the world anymore but um We'll see. <laughs> well uh, and hermits. Definitely
0: want to write more about hermits. So Yeah, that's a tough interview, but I guess yeah, you gotta yeah. you gotta go there. But totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, just remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls. And in fact, this is the last COVID calls I'm gonna do of twenty twenty one. So um number three ninety four is where we'll leave it here and we'll pick up again in the new year and um lots of amazing Guests, scientists artists activists members of my family coming in uh, january to talk to so please do see me after christmas and after new year's and i want to um thank john wallam um for your for your writing for your thinking and for taking time to talk about it here today thanks a million
1: yeah thanks thanks for doing this scott and thanks for being part of the piece too
0: stay healthy everybody happy holidays and we'll see you next time on COVID calls Mm